Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined, as always, by the president of Southern Utah University, Scott L. Wyatt. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Steve. One of my favorite things about working in higher education is that you get to rub shoulders with some truly outstanding academic minds, brilliant people that uh, are far smarter than I am, not only about their subject, but probably about (laughs) everything else, too. And uh, our guest in studio today certainly fits that uh, description. And I'm going to let you introduce him. Yes, I knew you weren't talking about me. (laughs) I knew you were talking about Dr. Roy. So we have as our guest Dr. Ravi Roy. Uh, Dr. Roy had the opportunity on our campus to deliver an Apex lecture as an outstanding and distinguished faculty member on rebuilding public trust. And that speech can be found uh, uh, on our website uh, under suu.edu and then Apex, A-P-E-X. And um, we have two things in common. We've both lived in Cedar City, and we've both lived in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So... uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, you know, where you've been in your career, but uh, you're part of our political science department and teach in the Master of Public Administration program. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Well, after that introduction, I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, as you know, uh, Scott, my father taught political science for 50 years, so I kind of walked into a family business, um, <laughs> and uh, as I as I shared in the Apex uh, talk that I gave, um, you know, my father was um, a left wing, uh, very progressive uh, professor in the 1960s. You know, marched with Martin Luther King back in the day, and um, and so I kind of took a little bit of a different road, a little bit more moderate right. Um, than he did in, in some ways. And so my my colleague, Dan uh, Swanson, uh, always said, do you think you took that road as kind of stick it to the old man? And I said, <laughs> and I said no, I, I, th- I think, I said, maybe, but I think it had more to do with, uh, we were allowed to think and encouraged to think independently. And I think that's more what it, what it comes from. And so in my own teaching career, um, I've really tried to encourage, uh, you know, a diversity of opinion a diversity of thought, and um, a dynamic and constant uh, discussion. Um, for my own career, uh, well, I took my Ph.D. almost 20 years ago now, <laughs> when I think about it, um, and uh, started teaching uh, political science, public administration. Uh, that led me to my first tenure-track job here about 14 years ago. And... Um, and then we left, we went back to L.A., then to Australia for a few years where we were in tenure, and then just couldn't stay away, Scott, and came back <laughs> to Cedar and were happiest for it. So that's kind of been my 
So you've done a lot of um, research and teaching, writing about uh, discourse, the civil discourse in America, where we're headed, how, how we found our way here, and, and uh, maybe some solutions to that. But why don't you first give us your observation? Yeah, so um, I am deeply concerned on a personal level with where we are in the state of the republic in the 21st century. And um, uh, it turns out, um, as you well know, as a historian buff yourself, that these were concerns that go all the way back to the founding and even before that. And so it was no accident that I drew on Madison uh, a couple of times during my Apex talk uh, about the concern about factionalism and the uh, propensity that we as human beings have to put our passions and our emotions uh, to work in the way that we relate to one another and the way we discourse with one another. But that has a negative effect, too, potentially, if you know we don't temper that and recognize our own biases and our own limitations, our own limitations of self-awareness. When we start to uh, you know, simply surround ourselves in the echo chamber, whether this is academically or socially or whatever, and refuse to let other ideas, including those we disagree with, um, allow us to engage with them. And I'm, I always share with my students that I want to introduce them to diversity of ideas, not because I want to change them, I mean, you know, force them to change their ideas, but rather if they end up engaging with uh, different ideas and uh, with fidelity and, and they come to the conclusion that they're still right, maybe even with stronger conviction, they, they hold on to what they originally believe. But at least now they've been tested. At least they've gone through baptism by fire. At least they've been able to sort of flesh them out and understand why it is that they think that the way they do rather than just because. Yeah, so it, it sometimes feels that today in our discourse, um, I know more what political parties are against than I know what they're for. And how does that shape the way we feel about our government today? That's an excellent question. I think it's reflective of the general cynicism that exists within the republic. And, you know, it's interesting because the data shows that, generally speaking, not just here but in other industrial democracies, people still have a lot of faith in democratic systems on a abstract level, democratic processes. But like I mentioned also in my Apex speech, we're not alone here in America with utter contempt for the result of what those democratic processes create, <laughs> which is the irony. Um, but that has its own danger, because if we, if we don't like the result, then ultimately we resort to, uh, uh, you know, to the kind of politics that we have now, where it's just expedient to simply paint the other side as so uh, unacceptable and so intolerable in the most uh, vitriolic language that you have no choice but to vote for me. And then, of course, they get elected, and now that venom is very much a part of the current of the political environment. And then we wonder why they can't get anything done. And then, we, of course, we come back and say, see, told you government can't anything done. I uh, quoted P.J. O'Rourke, the satirist, in my talk, you know, where, you know, if you look at how the different parties regard each other, the people within them, 
you know, people on the right would look at Democrats and say Democrats think that government, you know, can make you smarter, taller, better looking, richer, and remove the crabgrass in your front front lawn. Well, obviously, uh, that's not a very charitable characterization of how Democrats, you know, that what their position is. On the other hand, he says, you know, uh, Republicans think the government can't do much at all and then get elected to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's a, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of Republicans who believe that government can do a lot of good. And, and they do dedicate their life to that cause. I think some of the best ones we've had are right here in Utah, which is why I dedicated the entire talk to Senator Bob Bennett, because he embodies, to me, his career, um, someone who believed in the, in the value of listening to diversity of opinion, uh, championing important causes like civil rights, um, willing to take a stand against party when necessary, abiding with party when it made sense, building consensus and cohesion, not only within the state of Utah, but his leadership across the country. And when he felt that the uh, party in the country was moving in the wrong direction, had the guts to say something about it, and it cost him dearly. And when he was questioned later on about whether it was worth it, he said something I'll never forget, according to Salt Lake City Tribune. And they interviewed him as, some things are more important than political party. And I wish a lot more people on both sides of the political fence felt that way. When Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan used to go head-to-head on policy issues, and I mean it got mean at times, but it was never personal. And um, they always regarded themselves as each other as good friends, two Irishmen who just had that grit uh, that we're just going to go to political uh, task when needed to over policy issues that they deeply believed, and then found compromise. I mean, they ended up saving uh, entitlements together. You know, neither one got exactly what they wanted, but, you know, Medicare was saved, despite all the fear-mongering that when the Republicans came into the presidency, it was all going to—it didn't. It was, it was saved, and um, they did it together, and tough political fights are not a bad thing. But when it becomes personal and we start attacking people, that's where the problem comes in. Yeah, if you're unwilling or unable to go to dinner with someone after that fight, exactly, then it's a problem. Exactly. So we so we start out with um, if I uh, let's see if we're following this flow right. So we start out with an increasing negative rhetoric. And, and not negative about the issues as much as the people. And as that continues to grow, our ability to work together, to try to see each other's perspective, continues to drop. And, um, and then once a person gets elected, based on this um, kind of a personal, cynical kind of approach... Um, our expectations uh, go up, but they're never quite met. And so cynicism breeds more cynicism, breeds more cynicism, and uh, personal insults continue to grow. And eventually we lose the ability to come together um, and we become more fractured as a society. Is that fair? 
That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And, um, you know, the, I think the, um, the larger issue also behind all of this is recognizing our own limitations as human beings about our own expectations and how those expectations work. Um, for example, I talked about, uh, I think in one of the groups after the Apex talk, uh, let's just take 9-11 for example. It was amazing to me, um, in some ways, how the country gelled together uh, with a broad consensus and a coming together. And that was beautiful to see out of a horrific tragedy. On the other hand, um, it didn't take long for the speculation to start pointing fingers over whose fault this was. Um, those on the right were blaming Bill Clinton. They should have known because of what had happened with the New York, it's at the World Trade Center with the individual bomber a few years back with the bombing of the ship in Yemen that they should have known and that this was all, and had Al Gore been there, we would have been in really bad shape. And then uh, I don't think the left gave George W. Bush enough credit for, here was a guy that was blindsided out of nowhere and um, had to come up with something kind of on the quick of how to address it. And um, and both sides, I think, were uncharitable. And then we ended up with a legislation called the Patriot Act, which I haven't read, so I don't want to critique it. But I will critique the process in which it was adopted, in which the fact that nobody, uh, very few people, I understand, actually read it when they passed it. <laughs> so you're not the only one that hasn't read it. <laughs> the people that voted for it hadn't read it either. And, that, and that's concerning. On the other hand, imagine government where the People are saying government will sleep at the whale. Why didn't they protect us? And the decisive action that was taken, I'm not saying it was effective or efficient. I'm not going to make a normative judgment on it. I'll let history decide that. But if you think about it, every other industrial democracy had a ministry of home affairs or an internal ministry or whatever. And we just, because of our suspicion of, uh, of uh, going back to the founding, we just never had it. And we get an office of homeland security within few weeks. And then Congress authorizes the Department of Homeland Security. We have a brand new department. Um, so an enormous expenditure. And an, an enormous, enormous expenditure, yeah. enormous bureaucracy, yeah. bureaucracy uh, TSA. Now it looks like, okay, at least government is paying attention. And how do we respond to that? Oh, my rights are being trampled. Oh, look at the lines. That t look at how incompetent those TSA officers are. So it's like, on the other hand, uh, we have to look at ourselves and say, well, wait a minute, are we being fair? Um, and what about our own expectation? Now, I'm not saying that all these government agencies are working perfectly or anything like that. What I'm saying is these agencies were developed out of pressure from us. And then we're the ones that complain about the job that they're doing, but how much of the solution are we contributing? I mean, it's easy to burn down a barn. A barn raising takes a community. <laughs> We had a lot of revolutionaries uh, at the beginning of this country that couldn't find a way to help build a country. They, they're some of our great revolutionary individuals and our, the names we know well, but, but they couldn't build anything. Um, you said something interesting uh, earlier about how the greater our dependence on government becomes and, and the more and more we expect from them, the less satisfied we naturally are. Um, would you comment about that? Yeah, I, I think, again, it has to do with our 
polyphrenia or schizophrenia about our own expectations. Um, I think there are some paradoxes uh, built into uh, in the way we look at uh, many things, but politics is perhaps among the most salient. Um, our reaction uh, to political figures and their policies is largely emotional. Um, if I'm going to use the most uncharitable language, not because I believe this language, but just to illustrate the point. Those on the left uh, call the current administration uh, extreme uh, populist, if not fascist, uh, right-wing leadership. Um, those on the uh, more extreme right were looking at Bernie Sanders' campaign and calling that, uh, calling him a communist. Now, once you give those labels within the context of the American discourse, you can't have a conversation across left and right if you're using those labels to characterize with those whom you disagree. But if you look at an issue like, for example, free trade and globalization, policy-wise, at least as they were talking about it within the course of the campaign, using the language of using that harsh language and rhetoric, there is a hit no hair's difference between a right-wing populist fascist and a left-wing communist. <laughs> they are exactly. And so it's hardly any surprise that those that were disappointed with the failure of the Bernie uh, campaign, Bernie Sanders' campaign, uh, voted for Trump. I mean, the simple truth is he would not have been elected if there hadn't been people who jumped partisan lines and voted for him. From the, from the, uh, from the left to the right? Yes. As if... They touch as a circle rather than a line. On that issue, yeah. On yeah. issue by issue, yeah. I mean, we, now, I'm not trying to in any way downplay the uh, racist rhetoric that you know that exists on one side versus the other side, or the xenophobic, xenophobic rhetoric. But I'm saying if we're just looking at policy and we're willing to have a discussion about policy, um, that's a very different kind of conversation. Well, and, and there are other things that are feeding into this. I was intrigued by your comment about isolation, yeah. individual isolation and community isolation. Um, would you say just something about that? Absolutely. Briefly? So one of the things I show in my class is uh, a 4th of July cartoon that was in the 1800s of uh, Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And you can see the uh, the dynamic discourse of people handing out flyers and having conversations and it's a really uh, I think uh, enlivened uh, cartoon and then I juxtapose that to a town center that is uh, instead of a public square it's a parking lot it's got beautiful buildings it's got a beautiful bell tower looks a lot uh, like the motif of uh, what's well, actually a more Italian style <laughs> you know uh, but it's 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 kind of more uh, indicative of what we had today. But the, the, the spaces have very different meanings. In one, it's about public ownership, where free and open discourse can occur. And in the other one, I took a picture of one of the signs they have on the columns there, one of the buildings is, no excessive staring, no conversation above this, uh, no smoking, no this, no that. It's a no controlled... Skateboarding. No skateboarding. <laughs> it's a controlled space for a purpose of commerce. And so you can see that uh, meaning of space has changed. And one has moved from the, uh, the citizen, which is empowered 
A citizen is empowered. Every citizen is equal. To the consumer, which empowerment is different as a consumer. It has to do with my pocketbook or the credit that I have. Maybe not even the cash I have anymore. And so I have different rights and different uh, role as a consumer in that space. But what's even more concerning now is we don't even have that. What we have now is uh, Amazon, where now I just sit from the comfort of my home and I don't even go out to shop and I just sit in my home and I order something and it comes. So I don't even have the opportunity to go out even as a consumer, let alone as a citizen, to engage in a public space. Shopping malls are closing. Um, you know, this is, this is problematic. Back in the mid-19th century, um, one of the biggest events in a town would be a speech. Political speeches, uh, you know, there were these, there were people we, we, um, like Edward Everett, who um, ran as a vice president candidate in the 1860 election, but had been the president of Harvard and was, uh, was the guy that delivered the two-hour speech at Gettysburg. Imagine that. People actually sat and listened to someone give a speech for two hours. And, um, and he was famous all over the country. We, we had all these people that would go out and give speeches. We had lyceums uh, where people would come together and have speeches. And today, uh, we sit in our basements and listen to the, the talk radio. And instead of going out to plays as much as we used to, we stay home and watch it on television or Netflix. And as you said, we're we're staying home to do our shopping instead of going to malls and circulating with other people. It does seem like we're becoming um, more um, isolated as individuals, and our discussion and engagement is is more isolated. Is that part of what you're saying? I think that's exactly true, and I think that that's the heart of a lot of this. Um, we have disagreements, and we haven't developed a way of talking those through. We haven't developed the relationships with other sides. And the political rhetoric continues to make relationships worse and worse and worse. Because uh, how do you sit down with somebody and negotiate when you've just spent the last nine months in an election process um, saying that they're um, one step beyond the devil, you know? Uh, the evil incarnate. And, and, I, and, and it was really interesting, Steve, from your side, is that as a musician, you're not even getting together with the band to record. No, no. The <laughs> last several albums I've been involved in, uh, I have done entirely, you know, I, I haven't met the drummer that played or I haven't met whoever it was that played on my album um, because I didn't it, – it, it was financially expedient not to do so. It was far easier for me to just send them tracks and say, hey, will you play from – you know, from letter A to letter C, will you just play here? Um, and and it's a good way to make music financially, but it's not the same experience as spending a bunch of time in the studio with people and bouncing ideas off one another. Uh, and uh, the, the, I was going to say the anonymity of of being at home and in front of a computer screen calling somebody the devil versus, versus being in the room and calling them uh, those same names it has I, I think that's done a great deal to increase the level of vitriol the hyper the hyperbole that we use um in uh in that expression that 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 distance allows us is um 
problematic, as you yeah. said. Uh, well, and, and we don't even we don't even walk as much. You know, we one one of the things I try to do is walk to work every day so that I can walk through campus and say hi to people and visit on my way in and way out, as opposed to driving to a parking lot and then uh, sneaking into my building as efficiently <laughs> as I can. Yeah. Um, but one of our goals as a university, Southern Utah University has clearly stated, as many universities have in their mission statement and strategic plan, that one of our goals is to prepare students for the democracy in which we, we give them. And, and, um, and we're, we're striving to do that, aren't we? Uh, absolutely. And I always try to remind people that we're not a pure democracy. We were not meant to be a pure democracy. We're a republic with some democratic institutions to... It's a form of democracy. It's a form of democracy. But it's uh, the ultimate aim is liberty. And, and the democracy part is the means to that end. Um, and uh, we have to be careful because uh, the democracy part, uh, if, if that gets too emphasized above all else, then we can end up in a passion-driven, individualistic centric uh, political discourse. And so I always, you know, I always try to emphasize that, you know, we have to worry about the republic and the stability of the republic. I said, you know, a lot of our ideas of liberty and freedom and values uh, were borrowed from the French, and we institutionalized them in our constitution. On the other hand, uh, they have five, they've had five republics, five constitutions, we've had one. And um, that's both humbling and something we should be proud of at the same time. It's precious, but it's fragile. And to give in to uh, the, the passions that go along with uh, competitive democracy and, and processes, I think we have to, again, come back and, uh, and ask, you know, what is this all for? What's the ultimate aims here? Um, there cannot be a stable republic without a broad consensus. Uh, one of the, the points that I made uh, very strongly in my Apex talk was a lot of this has to do with the erosion of the middle class. We've seen the rise of the middle class in many of the BRIC countries, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and developing countries, while simultaneously we have watched the erosion of the middle class in industrial countries, not least of which in this one. You simply cannot have a bourgeois democratic republic if you do not have a bourgeois middle class that has the idea that one generation does better than the other. It builds stability into it. It builds a sense of commitment and a sense of certainty and stability. And um, globalization has not treated all countries fairly. And one of the reasons why you see the rise of populism in this country, which populism in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but again, tempered, uh, is because of this uncertainty. Uh, the middle class, very uh, understandably insecure. Globalization, uh, the, the inability of the government to protect us from things like terrorism, international global terrorism that originates from abroad. The inability of our government, nation state, to protect us from financial crises that originate, again, abroad. Uh, or or within and then move abroad and vice versa, but just the idea that we are not protected. This has also created a large uh, cynicism about what government can and can't do. But I, again, I just I just come back to it. 
government effectiveness in a democracy, democratic republic, depends upon uh, the mandate of the people. And where that mandate and that trust is not um, forthcoming, then government will be impotent <laughs> to do anything. It relies on the mandate of the people. If that mandate isn't there because people's trust isn't there, then how can it claim, how can it make bold initiatives? How can it uh, do good things? A healthy dose of cynicism um, is, is, is a good thing and has kept us free, to be sure. Our separation of powers is a testimony to that. But on the other hand, um, our government is now paralyzed. Um, paralyzed because uh, two sides aren't willing to talk to each other for compromise and build a broad consensus. Paralyzed because we don't have a lot of faith in government. And then we're surprised when government can't do what we expect it to do. So one of the main solutions in our opportunity here at a university and opportunities for people everywhere is to find a way to bring back discourse, to become less isolated in our conversations, to, to be less critical of people and focus more on ideas um, and, uh, and just build back some respect one for another. I, I look forward to the time when I hear, when I, when I get into an election cycle and see candidates running for office who say, I'm not going to criticize the other party or my opponent because my, th those in the other party, because if I get elected, I need to work with them and I, I want to start out with a good relationship rather than destroy it. <laughs> You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring President Scott L. Wyatt of Southern Utah University. We've been delighted and honored to have as our guest in studio today, Dr. Ravi Roy, a professor of political science at Southern Utah University. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.